From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Whether it was the fight against fracking, the corporatocracy, or NATO, nationally known activist Kevin Zeese always fought for the people and for peace. We hear from Kevin in his own words. And so I just say for us all now, solidarity with Venezuela, solidarity with Iran, solidarity with Yemen, Syria, Haiti, the list is long. Palestine, Palestine, it's time for us to get beyond NATO. And more on alternative parties and voices in the 2020 national elections, we follow Gloria Lariva of the Party for Socialism and Liberation as she advocates for the seemingly ignored survivors of Hurricane Laura in Lake Charles, Louisiana. We're demanding that the Trump administration lay out billions of dollars for recovery in Lake Charles and the surrounding area because it's more than Lake Charles that's been affected. To restore the electricity, to restore people's homes, and to have FEMA have intake workers throughout the community. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And whether it's this week's scandal of President Trump allegedly knowingly downplaying the seriousness of the coronavirus, or Congress failing to renew economic aid to millions of unemployed, or post office sabotage leading to critical delays of medicine deliveries, more than one political observer is referring to the United States in terms usually reserved for the third world. Nick Brana, director of the Movement for a People's Party, says that is why membership in that movement has grown exponentially. There's a term in political science for when a society descends to this level, and it's a, it's a failed state. The United States has become a failed state because as the richest country in the world, it can no longer provide basic needs to its people. And that's what we're seeing with the climate crisis and all these other crises. More in a conversation with Brana later in the show. Meanwhile, more than 1.7 million new claims for unemployment were filed for the week ending September 5th. And as of September 10th, there were 6.4 million confirmed cases of coronavirus in the U.S. and more than 191,000 deaths. And if the U.S. travails at home are not enough, this country continues to push its weight around the world. This week marked the start of the extradition trial of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in London's Old Bailey Criminal Court, where British justice has been enforced for centuries. A court described as a star chamber kangaroo court is convened to hear arguments for and against extraditing Assange to the U.S., where he faces more than a century of prison time, ostensibly for a computer hacking, conspiracy and espionage, Though it seems to be really about the U.S. continuing to punish Assange for exposing American crimes, including wartime mass murder, wholesale fraud and governmental abuses of power. Journalist Joe Lauria said on Consortium News that several witnesses, including Trevor Tim, executive director of Freedom of the Press, poked holes in the flimsy arguments of prosecutors. He argued that the government cannot determine who or not is a journalist. He said that the government is, says that Assange is not a journalist, so he's not afforded the same protections 
Tim responded, Trevor Tim, that that's irrelevant, whether he government thinks he's a journalist or anybody else. He engaged in activity that is what journalistic activity, engaged in journalistic activity. And that is the key point here, that what's described in the indictment is what journalists do all the time. They encourage, cajole, ask their sources for more information, even get breaking the law to get classified information. He said at one point, Tim, that if this indictment ever went through and if Sanchez was ever convicted, that somebody like Woodward and Bernstein and many, many hundreds of investigative journalists, including Bob Perry, the founder of Conservative News, would have been arrested and in future could be arrested because all they're doing is engaging in journalistic practices. But that's what the indictment is describing. Currently holding Assange in a maximum security prison for terrorists without charge and without bail or release to familial custody, the British court under Judge Vanessa Baratzer appears prepared to inflict as much arbitrary pain and suffering, mental torture and denial of due process to the publisher. Back here at home, continued police shootings and murders across the country have kept up calls to defund the police and direct needed monies to human needs not served by armed patrols. Chantel James has more. Profs and Pints, a series that seeks to democratize learning by inviting professors to give public talks in settings like bars, has expanded its reach online in the age of COVID-19 and has consistently provided voices on the movement to defund the police. The most recent talk in the series took place Tuesday and was attended by hundreds. On Defunding the Police was a discussion led by Alex Vitale, a professor at Brooklyn College and the author of the book The End of Policing. He talks about the inherent violent nature of policing here and links it to its roots in slavery. Police are, at root, violence workers. That's what distinguishes them from other parts of government. Police are who you call when you need hands put on someone. Police authority is not derived from the law. It's derived from their ability and authorization to use force when, quote, necessary. So even their presence commands authority because it is backed up by that capacity and authorization to use violence. And so the question is, what can we do to reduce the number of circumstances where we rely on violence workers to solve our problems? Because there are other kinds of responses that could be mobilized in a huge array of things that have been turned over to the police. The other problem is that this idea of policing rests on this idea that if they just enforce the law properly, that everyone would benefit from that equally and automatically. This is a kind of key assumption about the liberal understanding of the nature of policing in in a liberal democracy. But the problem is that those legal systems have never benefited everyone equally. In fact, many of them have been engines of inequality. The most horrifying, obvious example is just that slavery in the United States was legal for hundreds of years, and police played a central role in enforcing that system. 
both by managing slaves in the South and capturing runaway slaves in the North. Decriminalization was a process Vitale gave us providing a solution to policing, and he gave the positive example of Portugal, a society that has decriminalized all drugs, removed policing as a response to drug use, and chosen to view drug abuse as a public health issue with public health solutions instead of carceral ones, resulting in decreased overdoses and incidents of disease. To find out what's coming next from the Profs and Pints series, visit their website at profsandpints.com. From Northeast CC, this is Chantal James. In culture and media, the nationally known activist and writer Kevin Zeese died of a heart attack early September 6th in Baltimore. A virtual memorial is being planned for him on September 19th at 3 p.m. You can check popularresistance.org for updates. And we will have more from Kevin Zeese in his own words later in the show. In This Week in History, gold medal winner Olympic athlete Jesse Owens was born September 12, 1913 in Oakville, Alabama. He won four medals in track and field at the 1936 Games in Berlin, defeating Nazi athletes and disappointing Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. On September 8, 1941, the German army began its blockade of Leningrad, the cradle of Bolshevik revolution, lasting until January 1944 and resulting in the deaths of about a million Russian civilians, though the city itself never fell. And on September 12, 1977, Stephen Biko, the founder of the Black Consciousness Movement of South Africa, died in police detention from abusive treatment and torture. His death spurred on the resistance to ultimately tear down South Africa's genocidal apartheid system. And finally, here in D.C., New York, and all over the country, there will be remembrances of September 11, 2001, when more than 3,000 Americans were killed at the World Trade Center in New York, the Pentagon, and on a plane flying over western Pennsylvania. And to help us perhaps rethink 9-11 is the prolific author, activist, and our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And so, Gerald, I know you're taking a longer historical view of 9-11 and what it means for the whole world. Well, you may recall that the late President Franklin Roosevelt once spoke of a day that will live forever in infamy, speaking of the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941. But you can also say that about September 11th. Yes, September 11th, 1973, when U.S. imperialism in league with right-wing military in Chile, South America, violently uh, overthrew the socialist regime of Salvador Allende and established fascism. Unfortunately, this was not a singular event. There were like occurrences taking place in Indonesia, Ghana, West Africa, Grenada, and the Caribbean. And many of us have warned over the years that this inevitably would lead to a similar attempt to establish a kind of fascism here in North America, since it was tolerated, if not engineered, abroad. And as we witnessed the spectacle of armed militia invading the state capital in Michigan, of counter-protesters shooting down Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, 
or even what happened recently in Germany, which was probably the most startling of all, when neo-Nazis led a motley protest of tens of thousands that stormed the German parliament, inspired by QAnon, which we've talked about on this program more than once. And keep in mind as well that the protesters said that they were inspired by Donald J. Trump, who they were looking to help liberate them, believe it or not, from Chancellor Merkel. But of course, when we talk about September 11th, inevitably we have to talk about 2001, when 15 of the 19 hijackers driving planes into skyscrapers in New York and in the Pentagon and in presumably into the White House before being diverted into a field in Pennsylvania, 15 of the 19 hijackers were of Saudi origin, even though the United States helped to hustle a Saudi diplomat who had contact with the accused out of the United States before being interrogated. And like Chile in 1973, the roots of September 11, 2001, basically rest with this obsessional, maniacal tendency towards trying to root out the left and socialism. What I mean is that if you go back to the 1970s, you had a left-leaning regime in Afghanistan that Moscow helped to assist when the United States was trying to destabilize that regime with the assistance of religious zealots, including one Osama bin Laden. But alas, that assistance proved unavailing, and the zealots came to power in league with Osama bin Laden, who, according to official U.S. government reports, then collaborated with regard to the attack on New York and Washington. But what's even more remarkable about this unfortunate chain of events is that if you look at the Financial Times of September 10th, 2020, there's a quite intriguing article that suggests that at the end of the day, not only was China the victor in the Cold War struggle against Moscow, but also, in some ways, the victor of the so-called War on Terror. What they point out is that even though uh, the United States helped to overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, presumably on the faulty and false notion that he was involved in 9-11-2001, the United States is not the major recipient today of Iraqi oil, the biggest importer of Iraqi oil, and taking also one-third of Iraqi exports happens to be the People's Republic of China. Likewise, according to the Financial Times, it's China that's the major force behind this so-called peace process in Afghanistan that is leading to a withdrawal of U.S. troops, and they also stand to be the major beneficiary when Afghanistan's vast resources, which include copper, iron ore, petroleum, gold, are finally exploited. So as we begin to look towards the first Tuesday in November and looking for a speedy exit from the Oval Office of the Mussolini from Manhattan, I think it's important to also point out that we face another problem even if Mr. Trump is ousted. That is to say, as we've said more than once, Mr. Biden and his vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris are surrounded by Uber hawks like Colin Powell and Nicholas Burns and Michelle Flournoy, all architects of this disastrous foreign policy 
that has put China in the passing lane. So it seems to me that as long as they are going to be advisors to the Democrats, we still face the prospect of ruinous wars, draining tax dollars away from education and health care in the middle of a pandemic. And instead, what we should be pushing for is that the architects of these disasters and catastrophes should not only be ousted from influence, but perhaps extradited to the International Criminal Court in The Hague to stand trial for their many crimes. And that would be the ideal way to commemorate 9-11, be it speaking of New York, Washington, or Chile. Wow. When I look at the role of the U.S. now in the the coup, the what people are calling the lithium coup in Bolivia, the legislated coup in Brazil, and the ongoing attempts against Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, I can't help but think back to that first 9-11 and the U.S.-backed coup in Chile, which seems to be the blueprint for how the U.S. wants to operate in this hemisphere, what some people are brazenly calling an updated Monroe Doctrine. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Well, those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Cap shot 30 rounds in 15 seconds Four month old baby in the rear section Another mother gotta call the reverend A dear daughter, sister, veteran Now the media posing all the questions Slandering the victims, pointing out aggression Somehow the angel of God kept that baby protected Cause grandma prayed beyond the pictures in the necklace It's shooting up our boys out here like tetanus Where the rage, where the cries, where the lectures Where the special team of inspectors Made in America, where the projectors where the Lord to protect us The media constantly wanna infect us Cops like the TSA, they wanna inspect us And if we don't cooperate, they shoot us or arrest us But How you gon' fall when you ain't even tried to fly, yeah How you gon' fall How you gon' fall when you ain't even tried to fly, yeah We have been here in, uh, here in Louisiana. We have been to Lake Charles for two days this weekend to, to uh, ascertain what is going on with people and working class people on the ground. We have seen quite a bit of lack of resources. We have not seen uh, any, any government intervention, any help for most of the people. Uh, they have mostly been left to themselves. So we are here. We're demanding that the Trump administration lay out billions of dollars for recovery in Lake Charles and the surrounding area because it's more than Lake Charles that's been affected. To restore the electricity, to restore people's homes, and to have FEMA have intake workers throughout the community. A uh, bunch of boxes of wipes, got soups. Gloves so they can use bleach. Water in the middle, mandarinas. Mayo for the tuna, some heavy-duty trash bags. Uh, it was eye-opening what we saw in Lake Charles yesterday. People are suffering. Um, in some of the media, they said that Southern Louisiana dodged the bullet. But that's completely opposite from what we saw yesterday. 
houses are destroyed, people's lives are destroyed, everything they own is destroyed. Um, we've been living outside for like three days out here in my front yard. Um, my whole roof is on um, collapsed and the back of the house collapsed and the other roof, um, they have water all in the house. All my furniture is damaged. Everything is going bad around here. No electricity, no water. Me and my, my um, fiance, we've been looking for hotels staying and and just none available around here. Hey, I so appreciate what y'all do, done for me today. That mean, that mean a lot to me, man. Can we get you anything else? I'm Don't be lying. shy. Hey, that mean a lot to me. It ain't much, but it, it, it's a lot right now. It mean a lot to me. I'm going through a lot. I help everybody, man, all my life, you know. And I never thought, I can't, I can't get help, you know. Were you getting unemployment now? Um, I was getting it, yes, ma'am, I'm getting it. I was getting it. Were you getting the extra 600 a week? Um, when the first started, yes, ma'am. And it got cut off It got now, cut right? off, now it's one, um, 75 a week. How's it affecting you? I mean, by the time I, um, go around the corner, that money is gone in about two days or a day and a half. We don't have water here. We're suffering. You know, the law enforcement, the National Guards here, the law enforcement, they're working together. They're shooting at us. If we're catching this outside, they're shooting at us. I got shot at last night. Here? Here. I got shot at. By which force? The National Guards and the Sheriff's Department. Get to your house. Pow, pow. What the hell was going on? This is not mandatory like that. Was it dark? It was dark at night. I'm just trying to get from the store and back home. What's your name, sir? Aaron Willis. And what's your situation here? Uh, the roof is messed up. I stayed during the stone. And uh, I got kind of broke window panes. And uh, they started coming in the house and everything. I decided to just stay over here. And do you have electricity or water? No, I don't have no electricity and no water. What did you do before you retired? Before I retired? I'm an electrician. Yeah. Worked for the IBEW. Ah, you're a union member? Yeah, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Mm -hmm. And are you getting any kind of notice or help from the government? Has anyone told you no, anything? No, not yet. I don't have insurance, so, and my phone not working, and it, my phone got just cut off, I guess, during the storm. I couldn't call nobody. What's your name, ma'am? Tell me your story. Patricia. I'm raising my grandson. My husband's paralyzed, waist down, and we just don't know much people here. So any little help that anybody can give us, thank you, Lord. We appreciate it. And thank you for giving us this. Have you been visited by any officials for help or told anything? Uh, nothing. Not a thing. Y'all the only one that gives something. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is you. Do you have a cell phone? Yeah, I have a cell phone, but it don't work. Sprint is out, completely out. How'd your husband become paralyzed? Uh, he was working, fell off the truck. Eighteen oh. wheeler. Oh, when did that happen? Um, I think in like two thousand twelve, oh. something like that. And did he get SSI? Is he on disability? He on disability, and that's uh, our uh, monthly income. Disability. 
And that's not much. That ain't much. We have a lot of stuff to give. Okay. But we just want to ask, do you have water here today? Yes, we do. Running water? Not running water. No, we got run, but it's slow. Very slow. So what I did, I filled the tub up. All the uh, flush to come over. Yeah. You see, now take it back, because right now, they all say their water is not right. Since, since that plant got blowed up, whatever they did, it went into the water, so it is all messed up. There are many people we met who don't have house insurance. That shouldn't be an obstacle to having their home rebuilt, rehabilitated, and made habitable again. In other words, we know that the government has plenty of resources because the working class of this country produces all that wealth. We know that corporations like Google, Facebook, Whole Foods, Amazon, Twitter, that they made hundreds of billions of dollars in profit in this pandemic and yet pay virtually none or no taxes at all while the working class has to suffer the way that we see. It's just, there's just so, so many different stories of people struggling here in Louisiana and it's completely unnecessary. You have been listening to Gloria Lariva, candidate for president of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, meeting people and distributing aid to people in Lake Charles and advocating for them. The audio and video was produced by Breakthrough News. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Last week on our show, September 4th, 2020, we played several speakers at the founding convention of the Movement for a People's Party. And so this week, I'm following up with the executive director of the Movement for a People's Party, Nick Brana. Welcome to the show, Nick. And so I wanted to ask you first about where you see the People's Party kind of fitting into the political landscape and are existing parties scared of what you're doing? Well, I hope so. That's kind of part of our objective is to strike fear into the people who would deprive working people of what most of the world considers basic rights, like a single-payer health care system in the middle of a pandemic. And so... We are, of course, organizing for a major new party as the Movement for People's Party. Our membership has exploded since Bernie dropped out of the race and also since the two parties have incredibly mismanaged the pandemic to more than 115,000. So we hosted the People's Convention with uh, speakers such as Nina Turner, Dr. Cornell West, Jesse Ventura, uh, Danny Glover, uh, many other speakers, uh, Chris Smalls, Marianne Williamson, Ryan Knight. Uh, Because in the United States, as you referenced, these two parties for decades now have really not served working people and they're going in the wrong direction. Like we're we're not making progress. The more that these two parties are in charge, the worse that conditions for working people become. And it doesn't matter which one of them is in charge. The direction is the same. 
the cost of health care increases, number of uh, bankruptcies from health care increases, the number of students who can't, you know, who cannot afford to, to get higher education increases. The wars continue, uh, and, you know, those endless wars. The prison pipeline stays intact. You know, we have a nationally legalized uh, marijuana. You have uh, inequality continues uh, to increase at a drastic rate to where we have two, three billionaires now, you know, who are massively wealthy, have more wealth than the bottom half of America combined. And so that is why we came together to host the first People's Convention. And we intend on establishing the People's Party over the next four years, uh, running for Congress in the midterms and running a president in 2024. I ran several speeches from your convention on last week's show. I think, let me see, uh, Graham Elwood, you know, have a kind of comedic element, Caitlin Saposi, Belknap, Chris Hedges, and Nina Turner. And a faithful listener to the show he, uh, texted me right after saying that, you know, um, I enjoy these speakers, but, you know, I don't want them talking about the Green Party. They're just going to get Trump elected. <laughs> so... I wonder, you know, you had a variety of, of speakers talking about a variety of different strategies at the convention. So how do you deal with, number one, people who feel that, okay, all this talk about alternatives will just allow an overt fascist to be reelected? And secondly, how do you wrangle all these different personalities, some of whom want to vote against Trump, some of whom want to stick it to the DNC for their disrespect, and, you know, some of whom want to desperately want some other type of option for this year, 2020? Well, that was something that was unique about the convention and that we were very proud of about the convention. We did not try to control people's speeches. Rather, we brought people together who have varying different perspectives, uh, primarily on, on what you brought up, which is what to do about 2020, where we have, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, two uh, terribly unpopular choices. And some people thought that, you know, we should vote for the Green Party. Others thought that uh, we should vote for Joe Biden as a part of an anti-fascist coalition, as uh, Dr. West uh, and Marianne Williamson brought up. But what really unified us throughout the entire convention, and there was some discussion of that, but that was not the focus. What unified us and what brought us together was the fact that we never want to be in this position again, and that we recognize that voting for the lesser evil every four years, every two years, is really as a strategy for progress, uh, for improving the conditions of working people's lives, has been an abject failure. Things just continue to get worse. And so it's out of a need to break that downward spiral, what has now become a, a kind of like a free fall into oligarchy and authoritarianism and fascism, is that we need to form a major new party in the immediate wake of the election, and we actually had more than 400,000 viewers on the day of. That's now grown to more than 800,000 viewers of the convention as a whole. At the conclusion of the convention with the attendees that we had, we cast a vote that we think could be a historic one, could be a momentous one, to form a major new party of all attendees uh, that we polled. The vote was more than 99% in favor to form a major new party free of corporate money in 2021. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to do that. That's what brought us all together. Despite the various perspectives that we have now, we and millions of Americans can agree that this system is not working and we need an alternative. By the way, is that going to be the name 
the People's Party? We are having a um, founding convention next year to determine the official name, but I think it's one that has certainly stuck with people. Oh, okay. I suspect it will be. Oh, okay. But I, I think it's maybe common wisdom because you were formerly with the Bernie Sanders campaign and played such a large part in building that campaign that the membership of the People's Party will largely be taken from the Democratic Party. People believe that, even though I know that you have a, a kind of a bipartisan kind of populism that is uh, dealing with, you know, all people, working people, regardless of whether they consider themselves blue or red right now. So within that, what have you found to be the main reasons why people are leaving the Democratic Party? I mean, what are some of the main issues that have that you've heard from people in terms of saying, OK, I give up. I'm not going to take, you know, I can't do it anymore. And I'm going to go with this People's Party. For Democrats, what we've heard for the reasons for them leaving is that we're at a moment of overlapping crises right now. I mean, you have a health crisis with the pandemic, and yet the party cannot even bring itself to support Medicare for all, which is taken for granted in almost every other developed country in the world. Um, in fact, you have a nominee who says he's going to veto Medicare for all if he gets the privilege of doing so. At the same time, you have an eviction crisis that is greater than, than at any time including the Great Recession and the Great Depression. And you have 40 million Americans. That's more than one out of every 10 Americans that faces being removed from their homes. You know, without these eviction moratoriums that are the only thing keeping them there, uh, you have a crisis in, in the ability of the country to feed itself. One out of every three families in the United States with children can't afford food now. Is food insecure we're kind of in the midst of the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression, with more than 50 million people who had applied for unemployment. And so you have this kind of incredible confluence of crises that, and so people are saying, this has nothing to do with my lived reality and what's actually happening in the country. And we need a party that doesn't take corporate money so that it can accurately represent those perspectives and deal what is now these enormous, just overlapping, mounting and compounding crises. Okay. I've been speaking to Nick Brana of the Movement for a People's Party. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nick. Of course. Thanks a lot for having me. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. 
Well, back in 2014, when I launched this show on the ground, much of the left, especially the anti-war left, was still emerging from its reticence to oppose policies of the administration of Barack Obama, which had brutally suppressed the Occupy movement two years prior. But one voice carrying on before, during, and after Occupy was Kevin Zeese, a veteran activist, writer, scholar, and attorney. From the start of this show, six years ago until today, Kevin and his partner, Dr. Margaret Flowers, have continued as frequent, reliable voices of resistance against the dangerous process of fracking, supporting residents of Cove Point, Maryland, who fought to stop a liquefied frack gas export terminal from being built by Dominion Resources in their residential community when it was considered as almost a sacrament that progressives had to support Obamacare, Kevin and Margaret stood up for the public option for single-payer health care, for Medicare for all. And just like they had camped out for Occupy, Kevin and Margaret camped out at the FCC. I remember their tent out in front of the building in support of net neutrality, which they actually won until Trump came into office. And to this day, I credit Kevin and Margaret's dogged organizing against the TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty, with its eventual defeat. The TPP was a secretive plan drawn up by lobbyists that would have given corporations global dominance over local, state, and even national laws and policies. Kevin worked with Witness Against Torture. He worked in support of the Movement for Black Lives and against the desecration of Moses Cemetery in Bethesda, Maryland. When he died early Sunday, September 6th of a heart attack, his partner, Margaret, says that he was planning to write about the extradition trial of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange for exposing U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Along with Margaret, he was co-editor of popularresistance.org, an important clearinghouse for news and analysis from the left. And many will remember that he was a member of the Embassy Protectors Collective that was arrested, tried, and eventually had charges dropped for legally occupying the Venezuelan embassy at the invitation of the government of Venezuela. Here is Kevin Zeese speaking truth to power over several years on On the Ground. This week, protesters rose inside a congressional hearing on Capitol Hill to protest against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, a secretive trade bill that activists say will give multinational corporations the right to bypass local, state, and national regulations. They interrupted U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman's testimony before Congress. USTR, we're advancing those goals by knocking down barriers to U.S. exports, and leveling the playing field for American workers and businesses of all sizes. As we work to open markets around the world, we're not we're telling the American people the truth. We know that the Trans-Pacific Partnership has been negotiated for five years. We're trying to run it through Congress with fast track because it's cheaper than you know that they can there. But we're hurt the American people. We're going to offshore our jobs and lower our wages. Let's have order. All right, remove this person. We're not going to allow us to protect our communities.
The protesters, Dr. Margaret Flowers, Kevin Zeese, and retired steelworker Richard Ox, were all arrested after being removed from the hearing. Well, the next big step actually is the State of the Union, which is January 12th. Uh, And President Obama has said that he's going to make the TPP one of the centerpiece issues of that. He's going to really be pushing it hard. And uh, we have our media mobilizers as part of the FlushTheTPP.org campaign uh, ready to start to put out to the media the truth about the TPP and the other trade agreements that Obama's negotiating, and also on the, during the State of the Union and after it to be you know, get through social media making sure our message gets out. Obama has a very big podium when he does the State of the Union, so it's very hard to challenge it. But I think we are, as a grassroots movement, we are. this is the largest movement of movements against the, T, against the trade agreement. It's a really – I, I just want to put one little frame on that that doesn't get talked about often. We live in an empire economy. We serve the largest empire in world history. The TPP is part of neo-colonialism. It fits, uh, there was a great article by a Black Lives Matter activist about how the TPP fits into the framework of the, the racist realities we face in the United States and around the world. We, the largest empire in world history works to please the, the, the states that serve us and the oligarchs in those states. The workers in those states, uh, the environment in those states are going to be weakened. And Western right. corporations are going to be pa- more powerful than those countries around the world. They'll be more powerful than our country. We already had to change a couple of, a couple of laws. The, the label, meat, meat labeling law that re- told where meat came from had to be changed because of a WTO decision. We have right. to change the dolphin uh, tuna uh, labeling because mm. of another decision that's coming down from the WTO. So we're already having our laws changed. Mm. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're losing control of any minimal sovereignty we had to the corporate powers. Yeah, Hillary Clinton really represented the party. I mean, Hillary Clinton had her flaws, but the party has its flaws. And it's a party that favors their donors over their voters. I mean, you saw low turnouts in urban areas in key states because the the position of African Americans and Latinos has gotten worse under President Obama. They did nothing for them. They ignored these communities that are in crisis, and they still got no progress. So they stayed home. Women even didn't come out for Hillary Clinton in a big way. Uh, and that, that vote alone could have changed the outcome. They didn't come out because economics hurts them too. And I'll tell you, the, the national Green New Deal also means an end to militarism. We've got to cut that military budget drastically. I don't know if people noticed up here uh, in the audience that we had a little conflict uh, earlier with the police because uh, uh, we were violating the permit. Uh, we tried. We tried to explain to them, and looks like we succeeded. That a permit wasn't needed to pay homage to Dr. King. Right. That we're here speaking peace, and that is Dr. King's language. When we said that to them, they said that you're kind of stretching Dr. King's peace language. You're saying no to NATO. It show. It shows the ignorance that we have to overcome. It shows the ignorance we have to overcome. And that is our job. That is our job. If we can explain through our various methods of communication, we have lots of options as far as communicating goes now. If we can explain the reality of NATO as a cover for U.S. war, when the U.S. can't get the approval of the Security Council of the U.N., when they can't get the approval of the United States people, they have NATO. 
12 countries originally, now 29, soon to be 30, and maybe even after that, 31. They're constantly growing. They're talking about adding Colombia. Now as a new partner. They're talking about adding Brazil. What do those countries have in common? They're on the border of Venezuela. They're on the border of Venezuela. That's not a coincidence. And that's why it's so important to us to be in solidarity with Venezuela. They are under attack. They are under threat. And when we were in Venezuela, we were told by the people on the street that we are being lied to by the media and by our politicians. And we found out we were being lied to. We were told that they couldn't fly to Venezuela because of civil unrest. The pilots were told not to fly because it's too dangerous. We took a walk through Venezuela that day, filmed children having ice cream, families walking in the park, people going out to dinner, listening to music. The civil unrest was amazing. It was amazingly beautiful. And so I just say for us all now, solidarity with Venezuela, solidarity with Iran, solidarity with Yemen, Syria, Haiti, the list is long. Palestine, Palestine. It's time for us to get beyond NATO. The world needs to get beyond NATO. Thank you all very much. You know, the Washington Post, I mean, first off, Margaret mentioned Bezos getting a CIA. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year that he gets from the CIA. The owner of the Washington Post getting paid by the CIA. Doesn't anyone see a problem with that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, conflict of interest, no question about it. And it really reflects itself in the reporting in the Washington Post. When, when we visited Iran and Venezuela, countries under attack by the United States, what we see is that what is told in the United States is not just shading the truth to a falsehood, it is totally overturning the truth. It is, it is like white versus black. It is the opposite of reality. We are lied to. And this paper, this paper in, uh, that leads Washington, D.C. media is one of the key liars. And as a result of that, the most, one of the key jobs of all of us is to be the media. We have the job to get the truth out. So, so we appreciate you making this trip the whole way through with your camera. Thank you. Uh, but it is our job as individuals to build our own media, create our own uh, lists, whether it's through Facebook or, or Twitter or other social media or co uh, coalitions and networks. We need to be the media. We can each reach thousands of people. That means 100 people here can reach 100,000 people. And we can reach many more if we are focused on it. It's our job. Because the foundation of any movement is an informed population. And that is why they spend so much time and effort providing misinformation to disinform the population, to confuse the population. That is why at Popular Resistance we are trying to be as quick as possible when we see a, a U.S. coup attempt in Nicaragua, we see the U.S. regime change efforts in Hong Kong, we see the activities in Syria, we see them in Venezuela, Cuba, we try to get the truth out as quickly as possible because we know that once that lie is out there, it's going to infect us for a while. And we also know that they are not just targeting the, the general population, they also target the activist communities. We've seen uh, the peace movement divided over issues of Syria, over issues of, 
of Iran, issues of Venezuela and Nicaragua. We've seen divisions created by the National Endowment for Democracy, the regime change agency funded by the U.S. State Department. We, we, we were divided by the misinformation by the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. The liars are everywhere around us. So our urgent task is to rapidly correct the record and get the truth out so the movement can be informed. And then we really count on you at Popular Resistance. We count on you to spread the information because uh, they are working hard to suppress the truth, not just by lying through the Washington Post and through the by, by, by bipartisans in Congress, but also by suppressing social media, using the modern censorship of algorithms, the, market, the censorship of renting people seeing our posts on Facebook and Twitter, taking people off of those, uh, those sources. They're doing that because we are effective. The, the, when I say we, I say the movement is effective. When we work together to impact the narrative, we actually do impact the narrative. We do impact the narrative, and we can stop wars. We can stop corporate trade agreements. We can protect the Venezuelan embassy. We can do all of these things. We have power. They don't want us to know we have. And so it's always important for us to show that solidarity amongst each other. When we were in, we were in the Venezuelan embassy for 37 days, we so appreciated not just those who are inside the embassy, but those who are outside. Those who are outside showing their support. Those in Venezuela who are doing solidarity marches in support of the uh, Embassy Protection Collective. And we so appreciate now that people have come together uh, at DefendEmbassyProtectors.org to help us in our federal fight, our federal prosecution uh, for protecting that embassy. It was four of us against the United States and we're so happy to see a, a coalition of people coming together to join us. And we're about to go on a tour this afternoon to California, seven talks about the uh, Venezuelan situation, about U.S. imperialism, then Illinois, then Florida, then the Northeast. We are out there using this federal prosecution to get out the truth. <laughs> Getting out the truth and mobilizing the people, that is all of our tasks. That is all of our tasks. And so we really appreciate everyone who was at the embassy inside and out and those who couldn't make the embassy but still spread the word. We're amazed when we go around the country because of the incredible blackout of the information about the embassy. How many people actually followed it on a day-to-day, -day, sometimes an hourly basis? Uh, seeing what was going on was like amazing news to so many. Uh, but it was suppressed and the Washington Post was one of the chief suppressors. They assigned a reporter to cover it who is supposedly their, their reporter who covers protests. She may as well have been part of the opposition. The, the, the reporting they gave was pretty much opposition reporting. They were embedded with the opposition. Uh, and we were lucky to have embedded journalists with us. From Mint Press News, from the Gray Zone Project, Telesaur, a lot of group, Black Alliance for Peace. We had a lot of great people out there spreading the word. So I just want to leave you with that final point. The point I'm really trying to just underline in as many ways as I can in a short time. We are the media. And if we do our job as the media, we can change the direction of the country. And we have power that they are trying to tell us we don't have. So don't be afraid. Be strong and show solidarity. Thank you all very much. Since the United States attacked and occupied Iraq, uh, since then the U.S. has destroyed Libya. Obama started the war in Syria, right. still going on, 
We have caused chaos throughout that region. Yemen is being slaughtered by United States and Saudi Arabia. And what we're seeing now, we're starting to come into focus on a reality. We are in a global world war right now. The Middle East is the battleground for that war. Donald Trump ran on a campaign claiming the wars in the Middle East were, were a mistake, were wasting trillions of dollars, and here he is escalating those wars. We need to make it clear to those who supported Donald Trump that he was a con man. They lied to them. We know Hillary was a warmonger. We know that. But Donald Trump pretended to be opposed to Middle East wars, and here he is violating international law and escalating those wars. So it's time for us in 2020 to build a peace movement that cannot be ignored. This, You here today, you here today are on the cutting edge of that new movement. This movement's going to expand this year to tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands. This is just the beginning. Today, more than 80 cities in 38 states are holding protests to say no to the war in Iraq, to say U.S. out of the Middle East. We are going to accomplish these objectives. We're going to create a new world. The peace economy is our future. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. You have been listening to the words of activist, writer, scholar, and attorney Kevin Z speaking at actions covered by On the Ground or our interviews with him during the past six years of our existence. The last was January of this year, January 2020, at the No War on Iran protest in front of the White House, January 4th, 2020. Before that, at the Rage Against the War Machine March, which included a rage against corporate media outside the Washington Post, October 11th, 2019. The No to NATO rally held at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, April 4th, 2019, and in-studio and in interviews on November 11, 2016, and December 2015. Kevin Z died of a heart attack early September 6th in Baltimore. A virtual memorial is being planned for him on September 19th at 3 p.m. You can check popularresistance.org for updates. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, on Patreon, or patreon.com at onthegroundshow. Our new podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam. That's On the Ground, W. Esther Averam. And that's on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included The Crossroads, How You Gonna Fall, featuring Phil Day, Danilo Perez, Overjoyed, Burnt Sugar, What Rough Beast, our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>